0: Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom-designed storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com.
1: This is Pop Life from WAER. I'm Kendall Phillips. And if I mention the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences... Heck, if I just say the Academy, the first thing most people will envision are golden statuettes, slightly awkward celebrity speeches, and a red, well, at least sometimes red carpet. And yet, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is actively working to promote and preserve the history of filmmaking throughout the year. While much of that work might not be visible to the average movie lover, on September 30, 2021, the Academy opened one of the most ambitious and impressive public ventures in its 96-year history, the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. Here to talk with us about the mission, history, and plans for the Academy Museum is Dr. Jacqueline Stewart. Dr. Stewart is a renowned film historian, professor at the University of Chicago, host on Turner Classic Movies. MacArthur Genius Fellow, and as if that weren't enough, the director and president of the Academy Museum. Jacqueline, welcome to Pop Life.
0: Oh my goodness. Thanks so much for having me.
1: I mean, honestly, Jacqueline, my first question really is, how do I grow up to be you? But I will instead uh, ask you about the museum. Um, The idea of having a museum of motion pictures in Los Angeles is not particularly shocking. Um, Maybe it's more shocking that there really wasn't one until now. So what convinced the Academy to step into that space and start a museum?
0: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. It is shocking that Los Angeles had gone for so long without a museum dedicated to the industry, right? The the cultural practice that it's best known for around the world. In fact, the founders of the Academy in the late 1920s imagined a museum as a part of what Would enable them to really make the argument that movies are not just an industry, but also an art form, and to try to preserve the materials of filmmaking. But I would say it was about a decade ago that, after many different proposals and ideas over the generations, that the project that takes the shape that it has right now really got into motion. And I think preservation was a really key Mm. dimension of the Academy's decision to finally open a museum. Um, And I don't think that the sentiments of the founders were too off the mark for contemporary academy leaders and members. The desire for people to really understand the collaborative nature of filmmaking, the materials of filmmaking, and to see film as a a mechanism for education. I mean, I think these are the things that finally pulled all the resources and and the ideas together to make this museum possible.
1: You know, it's a very impressive museum, and I do think that idea of it, it, it really is a kind of educational site. You really get a chance just walking through the exhibitions, not just to see fancy things, you know, just not just the sled from uh, uh, Rosebud. I mean, it is a deeper dive into it. So is that part of the mission, not just to celebrate the history of film, but really to give people a deep dive into its history and the technical processes?
0: That's right. Absolutely. I mean, that's what museums across the board of all types uh, aim to do. And that's certainly the case for our museum. We want to increase the understanding of cinema. For us, that means not just the understanding of how films are made, which we spend a great deal of time and space and energy doing, uh, really going through all of the disciplines of filmmaking. I guess when people watch the Academy Awards, most people are very interested in the acting category, (laughs) the directing category, right? The best picture category, maybe some of the others. Well, at this museum, we really try to ensure that we shine a light just as brightly on casting directors and production designers and hair and makeup artists. Um, uh, It's a place where we have the ability because we're affiliated with the Academy to be in direct dialogue with thousands of Academy members to help us to narrate The histories and the technicalities of what they do in the various ways that they contribute to filmmaking. So it is educational in that sense, but then we're also deeply invested in increasing the understanding of cinema as a a cultural force. Um, You know, the various impacts that film can have on the ways that people understand themselves, get to know others. I mean, you know, the moving image is incredibly influential. And we trace the way that that influence has developed over time.
1: One of the things I was very impressed by uh, my recent visit, I got a chance to visit the museum in January uh, and very, very impressive. So you you, great job. Good job. Good good job. Well done. Um, But one of the things I was very impressed by was what seemed a very intentional effort to curate multiple voices. And that must be a point of tension maybe between the you know big spectacle the kinds of films that everyone immediately gravitates towards the academy award winners versus those filmmakers who didn't get that spotlight or the history of film that didn't get written so boldly into the hollywood hills
0: yeah i mean it's a challenge in the sense that um it can be difficult to find the materials mm. to tell the stories of films and filmmakers that have not been so, you know, canonized in other places. So we we have a wonderful example of this in an area of our core exhibition, which is called Stories of Cinema. And it's plural for a reason. We're not narrating one linear history of filmmaking, but rather we see it as a collective, a diverse, and sometimes, you know, a contradictory <laughs> history set of histories that we try to, you know, really conscientiously bring to people's attention. So in our core exhibition, we have an area called Significant uh, Movies and Movie Makers. And in that area right now, we have a beautiful exhibition focused on Casablanca, a film many people know quite well, (laughs) Sure. right next to that, uh, we have an area that is focused on the documentary filmmaker and activist, uh, Lourdes Portillo, who maybe most visitors to the museum have have not heard of Lourdes. But it's important to us that we put the work that she has done to amplify the voices of of Latinas in particular across a really long and uh, impactful career alongside a recognized Hollywood classic. This is the same approach that we take to our our film programming. We have a really robust um, film exhibition program in two theaters here at the museum. And you know, folks might come in because they recognize the titles of some of the Oscar winners that we mm. feature in our programming. But then it's also an opportunity for us to do major retrospectives on filmmakers like uh, Sajahid Rai, the, the Indian filmmaker, whose films have been preserved mm. by the Academy Film Archive. Uh, film is an incredible lure, right? I mean it's a, it's a um, it's a medium that draws people in in so many different kinds of ways. Everyone has a favorite film or a favorite moment that they can remember seeing a film. And if we can bring people in to recognize some of the things that they already know, our hope is always that they come away from the museum having seen and learned about things they've never heard of before.
1: It's probably an important reminder for folks who have not had a chance to visit or maybe don't know as much about the museum. It's My understanding is that the museum is not tied to the Oscar per se. These are not Academy Award winner museum or the uh, museum of the Oscar ceremony, that this is really celebrating the wide diversity of global film.
0: No, that's absolutely right. I know that's an expectation many folks have. And we do have a gorgeous gallery of Oscars <laughs> statuettes that people can see. And uh, because the Academy Awards is such a you know important cultural tradition, we have a gallery that shows highlights of speeches over the years and a timeline that Uh, recognizes some significant wins. Uh, We even have a feature there that shows the set designs that have changed over time uh, for the award show. Those are two galleries out of dozens that we have at the museum, where it is incredibly important for us to acknowledge that film is a global medium, um, to recognize that there are ways in which filmmaking as a practice is... um, is helping us to gain a greater understanding of larger questions. Um, and I think that it's important for us to really recognize how even in the moments when we are looking at the Academy Awards as a, as a moment of the people in the industry uh, acknowledging the greatness of their peers, even in those moments, there is celebration as well as a set of you know, critical historical questions that come to mind. So even like the most diehard Oscars fan will learn new things when they come to our museum.
1: Is that a delicate balance for you and the curatorial team there between Oscars celebrating of what was probably largely mainstream sort of entertainment? That's sort of what happens often. And those critical questions of why hasn't this kind of film or this kind of filmmaker or this kind of actor, et cetera, been celebrated. How do you manage to celebrate the Academy while also raising the questions of who's been included and who hasn't?
0: Yeah. You know, I don't know that we celebrate the Academy. I think what we do is we document the Academy. (laughs) And that means that we uh, run through the history of this award show as an incredibly important and global Mm -hmm. event but even at the awards themselves there have been moments when um when questions come up around inclusivity uh when there are um you know surprising wins and uh, and and changes in in rules and, and and categories and we chart all those things so i don't know that it, it hasn't been so much of a challenge of balancing celebration and and critical questions it feels very natural mm. um and I have to say that, you know, there were many delays in opening the museum, COVID being, of Ooh. course, something that delayed many things <laughs> that haven't been happening around the country, around the world. But I feel like this museum opened at just the right moment, actually, because it's a moment when what we're seeing, people are looking for spaces to have these critical conversations. They want to develop the, the language that they have to be able to talk about issues of race and gender and sexuality and ability and um our museum is really serving as a platform for bringing people together to have those kinds of conversations and of course it doesn't mean that everybody goes away happy you know when you have these (laughs) kinds of conversations you can be they can be uncomfortable um but but i think we're at a at a critical point in those kinds of cultural conversations and i'm really proud of our curatorial team because they recognize their role in staging those moments. Um, It's about providing the most up-to-date information that we can really mining stories about filmmaking in places that had not been, you know, mined before and um, and then presenting them to the public. And, you know, (laughs) we're so new. We've been only open for a year and a half Mm. now. So we're in a major listening, you know, mode we're looking and we're we're listening to our visitors and where they're responding to the stories that we're telling and what kinds of things they would like to, to see and to hear. So it feels very um, interactive. Uh, and And my hope is that as visitors are coming in, they're recognizing that in our newness, they're really helping us to build what this museum can be.
1: No, that's an amazingly uh, generous attitude and, and certainly will uh, set the museum in good standing for a long period. But I am curious about any particular difficulties I mean I think about the academy of course well known for the celebration or recognition of filmmakers the preservation of film and and documents uh, of being there Mm -hmm. but to open a brick and mortar space and to display thousands and thousands of of rare objects artifacts documents um, that must be harder than it sounds
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's a big job no question You know, what's really, one of the things that really drew me to this position is that the Academy has been collecting materials for decades. Mm. So the Margaret Herrick Library, for example, opened in the late 20s. And that is a massive repository of scripts and photographs and costume design drawings and posters. And it's always been, you know, open for research. But I don't know how frequently people just think, oh, I'll go to my local film library to check some things out, right? Like it was really about mm. filmmakers and and professional scholars primarily using those resources. The Academy also has a film archive, the Academy Film Archive. Again, it's a massive repository of film prints and uh, just extraordinary collections, one of the most important in the world. And now the museum joins the library and the archive as, um, as part of the Academy's efforts at documentation, but it's a bigger platform for sharing it with the public. So many of the materials that we are presenting in the museum come from the Academy's own collections. Um, that's true for our film programming as well. So really it's like an embarrassment of riches is <laughs> like the challenge if it's the biggest challenge in many ways is to think about what those major narratives should be and what, what they, what, will be most resonant with our visitors and um and thinking about how to balance a kind of um scope of representation across the museum so yeah there's something like we have something that kind of looks like (laughs) a train schedule on the wall (laughs) where we really think about okay if we're telling stories about a contemporary film we want to make sure we have historical balance we want to make sure we have um a diversity of uh global cinemas represented and um and so these are questions we're constantly asking ourselves and um, uh, that it, it's a challenge, but it's, a, it's an incredible challenge to have. It's not unlike for me uh, with my background as a scholar, as a professor, you know, how do you put together a syllabus when you're teaching a film <laughs> history class? It kind of works like that. Um, and you hear back from your students and it's like, okay, well, next time I'll include this, I'll take that out uh, and think about different combinations of things.
1: Yes, the, the preparing the syllabus hits hard. Yes, I, I feel that pain. Thank you, uh, Dr. Stewart. I am curious about, about that, uh, if we can pivot a little bit to your background. Mm-hmm. Again, I find you a fascinating individual. I've, I've read a, a good deal of your scholarship, which is uh, amazing oh, wow. and, and, and insightful, and, um, and followed you as a public intellectual and just such a champion of, of particularly early film history, which I feel, um, yeah. even as everyone loves film, the, the early years often kind of get uh, swept uh, back in the closet and, and left there. But I'm curious for you, what was the first film, if you can recall, one that really sparked your imagination? What was that connection when you first said, wow, that's something special?
0: Oh, that's such a great question because I watched a lot of films as a kid. <laughs> um, but it may have been jumping ahead quite a bit. But when I saw uh, Dreyer's Joan of Arc, mm. um, The Passion of Joan of Arc, uh, I love silent films. That's a hard one to watch <laughs> in yeah. many ways. It's um uh, it's kind of abstract in the way that it's put together. And, um, and it's a film that details a tremendous amount of, of pain. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's somber in many ways, but to me, it was a film that demonstrated just the power of framing and Mm -hmm. how spending time with a face on screen could really get you to, um, to feel emotions in a way, and to connect with a historical figure that might otherwise seem elusive. Um, and you know, I think that that was a film that in many ways sparked my interest in silent filmmaking. And I, I hope I can continue to be a champion of silent films because as you said, they get written off. Um, I think in many cases, they just haven't been projected properly or Um, uh, people think that silent films are missing something. Now that (laughs) might sound silly. They're missing sound. Well, it's not totally true because films were never shown in complete silence. Although Dreyer did want that film to be shown in complete silence. (laughs) Uh, But they had musical accompaniment. Um, And then I'm really interested in audiences. I I don't know that there's ever audiences who are completely silent. People are reacting (laughs) to the films. And uh, so what I try to do in my work is really to bring back and contextualize the original ways that people interacted with these films and it wasn't dry and boring black and white people think black and white films are missing color (laughs) but it's just it it, to me is a really interesting way of of ignoring the specificities of the aesthetics of black and white filmmaking and you know with silent films the ways that actors had to get stories across using their faces, their bodies in different ways. Um, it's, like, it's like a different universe. And to me, that's just, it's fascinating. And I, and I hope in my work that I'm able to bring people to not just judge older films for what they lack or to think about how the technologies that have developed over time are always better. They're different, but they're not always better.
1: No, there is that anachronistic thinking that that assumes, you know, Georges Méliès was just sitting there wishing he had an IMAX camera and, uh, you know, Technicolor (laughs) and surround sound. And if only that could be that. But I am curious about when did you decide that film history was was there a a different direction you were going? I mean, it seems like Mm. a lot of folks maybe start with I want to be in the movies or I want to be writing the movies and pivot. But for, for you, was it always film history?
0: Yeah, I was always interested in it's that it's both the aesthetic history and the cultural history. I I was studying literature as an undergrad Mm. at Stanford and um, took a film history class and then had this great opportunity to work with a professor who was developing a class on African-American cinema. So it was my job to kind of go out there and find out what had been published before and where can we find some of these films on VHS at that time. (laughs) And uh, I just fell in love with hunting things down, finding things in the archives, um, hunting me up with lists of resources. You know, I just really nerded out on and was um, disappointed by the lack of material on so many aspects of film history, African-American film history in particular for me. So I really wanted to, find these films that seem to be lost and I wanted to have conversations with filmmakers and archivists about their practices and that really started for me in college. Uh, and then I ended up getting my PhD from the University of Chicago in English because there was not a, a film studies program mm-hmm. there at that time, but then when I joined the faculty, eventually there was an undergraduate program and now there's a graduate program in cinema and media studies. And, um, it became very clear that so many disciplines are invested in film history. I mean, film to me is the, is the ultimate discipline to study because it brings together every other, every other art form. It's literature, it's music, it's performance, you know, the history of theater. You think about adaptations, you can think about, um, uh, questions of like film and philosophy and, um, uh, visual art. It, 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 it seems like it's a, a, an area that speaks to so many other disciplines and one that other disciplines can really um, profit from.
1: No, it's uh, certainly film seems such a foundation for mass culture. And I, I often watch my students' TikTok videos because I don't really understand it. But I often think those seem like early, very early silent shorts. They're, they're, they're little short sure. bits, right? They've got a little sound. and But it's dancing. It's pranks. It's pratfalls. It's like, I, I saw this <laughs> in 1899. I don't know. What, what, why are we doing this now? But I'm curious well, about you. I mean, you, you are... Are were certainly a renowned scholar, um, well established, a really influential leader in your field, and then to decide to go direct a museum—that—that that had to be, was that a tough choice? Was that a, a soul searching moment, or was that a just natural extension of what you felt you'd been doing?
0: Well, I mean, it was tough in the sense that it was you know a totally new area for me mm. to go into. And when I came to the museum, Bill Kramer, who was then the director and president brought me on as the Chief Artistic and Programming Officer. So um, when he described the role, the the hopes for the museum, it felt like a natural extension of what I had been doing because I would be overseeing the curatorial team as well as our programming teams. And at the University of Chicago, where I've been on faculty for a long time, I have um, always tried to find ways to connect my scholarly work with, with the public mm-hmm. and especially with people on the South side of Chicago. I, I was born and raised on the South side of Chicago. So I would open up, you know, my screenings and I would curate film programs. And I founded a project in Chicago called the South side home movie project where we were and continue to archive amateur films shot by South siders as a kind of, um, you know, intimate public history. And I directed a, Uh, an initiative called Arts in Public Life on the South Side, which had a gallery, has still a gallery and um, performing arts space and really tries to cultivate the arts as a way of thinking about innovative ways to uh, amplify um, uh, economic development on the South Side of Chicago through culture. So, you know, I always felt like I (laughs) had one foot outside of the usual boundaries Mm. of an academic life. And in 2019, when I joined TCM as a host, uh, that felt like a beautiful way to continue to talk about films that I care about a lot, but to a bigger audience of film lovers. And then so the museum became just a further step in that direction. And what's especially exciting about the role that I have now is that I get to think about these larger connections between the museum, the Academy Film Archive, and our Margaret Herrick Library, how to shine a light on the importance of film preservation, how to get young people really interested in these longer histories of the media that they use, as you were just saying, (laughs) and and consume all the time. Um, And, uh, you know, it's been really interesting to me, too, to, you know, move my life from Chicago to Los Angeles. I've always done a lot of research here, and I have so many wonderful friends and colleagues at universities in LA. But the museum's role as a local resource, um, as a neighbor in Los Angeles, I mean this ties directly to the kinds of things that I have been doing in Chicago where uh, it never seemed to me that a university was like an agnostic kind of entity. It's it's, It's embedded in a community that University of Chicago is in the community that I grew up in. So being here I'm always thinking about how can this museum be a resource and amenity for Angelenos?
1: Yeah, in so many ways, the Academy Museum is a global museum. I mean, films touch us all. But for you, it, it's also a local museum. How, how do you feel like folks in Los Angeles are responding to this? Is it Does it feel like a natural good place for them? Are they thrilled to have the story of motion pictures told in their backyard?
0: Well, I hope so. I think so. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it's something that people have been waiting for for a long time. There's a lot of curiosity about, so what is this place really going to be like? (laughs) Um, To have a successful film exhibition program here means that we have to have really strong connections to local community and help folks feel that they don't just come once, right? They come back again and Mm -hmm. again. We have a number of what I think are really important accessibility initiatives at the museum. For example, we have a program called Calm Mornings, where we invite people into the galleries, who are neurodivergent. Um, and we have the lights in the galleries turned up a little brighter. We have the sound turned down. We do the same for the screenings that we do on our home mornings. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I, I hope will encourage families who might not feel as though they are you know, um, comfortable or welcome in, in typical museum or film exhibition environments to know that there's always a space for them to come back to here. Um, and we've been working really hard to develop community partnerships to work with local artists and businesses uh, for developing products for our retail store. You know, we we can have a strong cultural and economic impact and um, the awareness of that and then taking steps in that direction are incredibly important to me.
1: You know, it's a very collaborative and generous spirit but i am curious uh, one thing i always like to ask folks who are working in archives or museums is yeah has there been an object a thing that you walked up to and suddenly thought oh my goodness that is that thing has there been an oh wow object for you so far working in the museum
0: oh man so many <laughs> i knew you were going to ask me this question and i was <laughs> like how do i even begin you know um Right now, we have uh, in our the Casablanca Gallery that I mentioned earlier, exhibition, we have the two pianos that Sam, played by Dooley Wilson, mm. plays in the film. The one he plays in Paris and the one he plays so famously in Casablanca. And it's the first time, you know, that these two pianos have been together. <laughs> so to see sometimes when you see things in color that are in black and white mm. films it's just astounding there's that element um but just looking at their their scale and their and the way that they are designed just is is awesome to me it's incredible that to me that we have both having one would have been enough but to have two is really mind blowing um and then we also have in our exhibition regeneration black cinema 1898 to 1971 uh a gown worn by lena horn in the film stormy weather wow and uh a significant amount of preservation restoration work was done on this gown it's gold sequined piece and there's just something about costumes when you can see them you know right up close and see them off screen that gets you to really appreciate their craftsmanship uh and, and it humanizes these characters uh, and, and these actors, some of these icons. And that's another one that I have to say, I go visit on a pretty regular
1: basis from my office. Well, Jacqueline, we're thrilled that you came to visit us here at Pop Life. And now it is time for me to ask for the envelope, please. Of course, here at Pop Life, the envelope contains the questions for a little segment we call the Fast Five. Jacqueline, I'm going to ask you five questions related to uh, film history. I'm going to ask you to follow your instinct and choose your favorite answer, beginning with question number (laughs) one. Jacqueline, if you had to spend the rest of your life in one of these Oscar-winning films, would it be Casablanca or The Godfather? Ooh, <laughs> Casablanca, I would say, yes. It seems like a lot more fun. I do know, the Godfather always seemed a little bit dour, <laughs> doesn't Godfather, it? I would have to look out behind my back. <laughs> exactly. Question number two for you, Jacqueline. If you could sit down for a cup of coffee with one important figure from film history, would it be groundbreaking filmmaker Oscar Michaud or the legendary performer Paul Robeson? Mm, Oscar Michaud, uh, because uh, he's
0: someone who... Uh, it, it's been really hard to really get a sense of him as a as a person. Mm. <laughs> There's so many questions I want to ask him about how he was able to do what he did.
1: Yeah, an impressive and intriguing, uh, mysterious figure in many ways. I agree. Question number yes. three, sticking for a moment with early years of film, since you and I share a love of silent era horror films, which is more likely mm-hmm. to be on your Halloween viewing? Would it be Benjamin Christensen's Haxon or F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu?
0: Ooh, Nosferatu. No question.
1: It still is creepy, isn't it? It still kind of (laughs) holds that. (laughs) Question number four for you. Moving now towards the museum. Which of these films is the least likely to be featured in a significant movies and movie makers? Uh, (laughs) Would it be Sharknado from 2013 or the 2000 Ashton Kutcher vehicle, Dude, Where's My Car?
0: Hmm. This is a tough one. I don't want to speak for the curatorial team. We, we discuss and vote on everything. Okay. But um, I have to say Sharknado, maybe it would be less likely.
1: I think, yeah. you know, one day we may recover the cinematic importance of Dude, Where's My Car? But I think Sharknado is probably off the list. Finally, question number five for you. <laughs> uh, in other interviews, you've talked about your beloved Aunt Const- Constance and her yes. love of old movie and movie stars. So I'm curious, which of these was her favorite? Was it Lauren Bacall or Betty Davis? Oh, Betty
0: Davis. Uh-huh. Absolutely, Betty Davis, yes. And you know, there's this really incredible essay that James Baldwin wrote um, where he talks about being in Harlem as a kid. He's at the grocery store. He looks up and a woman comes in who looks exactly like Betty Davis. <laughs> we have to assume it was a Black woman he's talking about. Uh, but there was, I think, this appeal that Betty Davis had for African American audiences that they wanted to claim her as their own. Um, so Betty Davis was someone my aunt absolutely
1: adored. We have absolutely loved having you. Our final question, is always, Jacqueline, is what is in your pop life? Are there particular aspects of pop culture that you are loving at the moment?
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, I have been, my cousin Suzanne told me to start watching Swarm. Mm. <laughs> and uh, it's so intense and fascinating. I just think it's a really, really... Uh, Engrossing reflection on um, uh, on celebrity fandom. So I've been really uh, shocking to myself enjoying Swarm.
1: A fabulous suggestion. Dr. Jacqueline Stewart has been our guest from the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. Thrilled to have you. Now, while the Oscars and now the museum are public ways, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences celebrates cinema, they are also working hard to preserve and restore its history. Please join me over the next two weeks as we continue our special three-part series, The Academy Beyond the Awards, right here on Pop Life. I will see you all next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER, Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at WAER.org. And don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes.